This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Gas prices getting awfully expensive, but didn't the state just create a department to try to control all of it? We go in-depth into what's going on. A bill in Sacramento looks to help Hollywood actors in their fight against the studios and AI. And more baby boomers are becoming homeless. We'll look into why. We start with high gas prices and whether the state's new Division of Petroleum Market Oversight sounds good, doesn't it? It has a nice sound of that, yeah. It has a good name. Should be doing something about it. Jamie Court is president of Consumer Watchdog, which was influential in getting this new division created. Uh, Jamie, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Okay, so it sounds impressive. Division of Petroleum (laughs) Market Oversight. Uh, is it doing anything? And if it is, how come the gas prices keep going up? Well, we it just got its new head. Ty Milder just started like two weeks ago, but uh, it needs to get in high gear. Uh, we have a real problem with gas prices in the state. I've been following it. We've had, uh, you know, when when our gas prices are like a, a more than a dollar ten gap with U.S. gas prices, something's wrong, and we're up at a dollar forty gap with U.S. gas prices, and it's grown every week by about a dime. Uh, We also know, because there's new reporting, that the refining margins, how much the refineries are making uh, per every gallon of gas has grown. It was 66 cents per gallon they were making in uh, profit in January, and now it's up to $1.20 in profit, so it's doubled. So there's all, something a matter. There's something a matter. There's no no question. This market, there, there's a problem with this market. It almost feels like as we have passed uh, regulations, created this board, mm-hmm. the the oil companies respond by finding reasons that the price has to go up. Well, the, the what we found, and I, I've I've given this information to Ty and and the uh, and the uh, bureau, we found that their, their exports were very high this year. So they're exporting a lot of our gas. They're not, there's not a slowdown in production, but they have been exporting uh, pretty consistently at a high level all year. And when that happens, they dry up the gas supply and the gas prices become higher and they can make more money from them. So I, I think it's time for us to impose this price gouging penalty that the state is authorized to impose, but hasn't begun the process of creating the rule making to do. I mean, this is really a warning shot uh, for the state that if they don't get in high gear and put a regulation on the table so that they can take the money back when these uh, refining margins get out of whack, then we are going to see more price hikes like we did last year. Last year, gas prices were $2.60 uh, difference from the U.S. prices. Now they're $1.40, but they keep growing. So, so Jamie, Jamie is, you, you, is, they need to, this right. needs to happen quickly. Yeah. Well, quickly. Uh, you said that uh, we're exporting all of this gas. So what yeah. country do I have to go to to fill up my car? <laughs> a lot of it's going to Central America. Central and, America. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of Central American gas uh, ex- is being exported this year. And with exports continuing to be high, uh, obviously, uh, when we have a changeover in, you know, if, for the refineries to go to a new grade of gas, our gas becomes more uh, scarce. So we've asked the Bureau to look into whether they're exporting into markets where they're not getting as good a price, because that's the key, right? If they're exporting because they can get a better price in Central America, then, you know, that's, that's, that's just that's free market economics. If they're exporting to Central America and not getting as good a price, then something's really the matter. 
And what, what's different this year, though, is we have someone who's now able to watch that kind of activity and to take action should he find that type of activity. And all the information that we remember, we just this law just passed the end of March, really April 1st. And so it, it is it is it is slow getting up and running. But we do have someone on the beat who's watching, who's listening. I don't know what he's going to do, but he's taking in the information we're giving him. And we do have uh, the ability, as I said, to uh, to penalize refiners for profit margins that are too high once we create that rule. Now, they're talking about six months to create the rule. I think that's too long. But um, but we are going down a road where this type of profiteering won't be allowed. And we can chart it now because mm -hmm. this is the first year we've actually seen their refining margins month by month. And it's right there on the website for the California Energy Commission. We know it's $1.20 as of March that they're making per gallon right. just in their own profits. And that is twice what it was in January. All right. Jamie Court, thank you so much. President of uh, Consumer Watchdog, uh, trying to get that new division started. And it's working, or is it, uh, Division of Petroleum Market Oversight? He said that uh, the gas is being exported to Central America. Central, Central America. Yes, I'm trying to do a calculation. So how how well, much gas it would take you to drive there to no, get gas? Well, I'm trying to see if it's cheaper to go to my uh, corner gas station. Right. Uh, which is in excess of $6 a, a gallon wow. now, uh, or is it cheaper for me to put my car on a boat, <laughs> send it to Central America, right. take a plane <laughs> to Central America, meet up with my car, fill up the car with gas, and then repeat the process and come back? It may be cheaper. It might be cheaper. It might or, be cheaper. At the very least, you break even. Right now, though, a bill is being introduced in Sacramento that would help striking Hollywood actors deal with their concerns over artificial intelligence. With us now is the bill's author, Democratic Assembly member Ash Cholera from San Jose. Thanks for being with us. Sure, my pleasure. So tell us what this bill, if it becomes law, would do to help the uh, striking actors. So what this bill would do is really um, focus on contracts that kind of transfer the rights to a performer's digital self um, to these studios and it protects and essentially protects an individual's likeness, image, voice from contracts that will take ownership of, of, of those items kind of forevermore. And a lot of contracts do that. We want to make sure that our actors are protected from their images being used, especially with generative um, artificial intelligence going forward where they can use one image and create a whole identity based upon that individual's image voice and and that's just not right here's the other problem though when you're talking with artificial intelligence and taking an image or so uh you know a company if they wanted to could take the image of uh, of a working actor or actress and uh, create a digital duplicate of that person and to avoid uh, issues like your proposed law they could just subtly alter that image just a little bit because it's in a computer you can do whatever you want to with it and uh could they skirt the law that way well there's always ways if someone wants to avoid you know following the law uh, someone that's nefarious will f find a way but what this legislation will do it'll actually require that in contrast um, between studios and actors that they actually account for that individual's, individual's image. It's just like the laws we have, the copyright laws for music. Right, they might change a note here or there, but if you can show that uh, someone's um, musical intellectual property was used, you have the right to sue. And ultimately, those decisions will be made 
by a court of law. But if someone is, you know, that um, dastardly to do that, then certainly, you know, the courts will have to take that up. Let's talk the nuts and bolts of making law. Is this bill, does it stand a chance? What's the support like in Sacramento? You know, I, there's no doubt that AI, we've even seen it from the governor who's taking a close look at artificial intelligence in general and its impact um, on our economy. Um, there's no doubt that this issue is getting more and more attention in Sacramento. Now, the likelihood of this bill being successful, we're going to find that out in the next few weeks and months ahead, as now that we put pen to paper, it's going to hopefully require and urge these studios to come to the table and actually have conversations with us because the status quo is not good enough. We know that we have to protect individuals' image, likeness, voice to make sure that their rights are protected. I mean, no one knows if the strike will still be going on, but if you were to succeed, this bill becomes a law, gets signed, uh, goes into effect. Does that take the issue off the table and the current contract negotiations between the actors and the and the uh, studios? Well, there might be some details that would still have to be negotiated. But what we hope is that it empowers uh, the actors. And, and, and let's keep in mind, especially those small role actors, the big name actors, they're going to get what they want in contracts. It's those small role actors that we're really looking out for here uh, and commercial actors, what have you. Uh, We hope that if this is passed and becomes law, that it will empower um, the actors and require the studios to account for this in the contracts. Because uh, going forward, you know, we don't know where the technology is going to take us. And so it will require this as part of the process of negotiation. So, you know, the studios have a lot of lobbying, a lot of money, a lot of clout. Uh, is this the kind of bill, uh, Ash, that if they came to Sacramento and said, look, uh, we'll be a little bit more uh, malleable in our negotiations with uh, uh, our actors, but you guys just drop this this talk of having legislation. We would rather there not be a law about it. We'll, we'll just deal with it. Is that in the cards? Well, absolutely. We can expect for them to try to do that. But we're not here to do the bidding of these studios that literally make billions of dollars in profit because of the actors and the talent on the screen, not because of studio bosses. So I'm more than willing to sit down with the studios and, and have a constructive conversation. But if their goal is simply just to come up here to try to kill our efforts to delve into this issue, uh, then I think they're going to fail. All right. Uh, Democratic Assembly member, thank you for joining us. Ash Colra from San Jose. And a little bit later, uh, can law suits stop climate change? You know, like uh, we're going to sue the earth or whatever. <laughs> uh, we'll talk to an attorney who's taking on big oil to help save the planet. So he's going to sue oil, not right. the, not the oil. planet. Oil itself. Right. As a, right. Yes. Because yeah, suing Mother Nature you don't want to do. No, because right. uh, Mother Nature has a big law firm behind her. That's right. Yeah. Uh, right now, though, if you are headed to Las Vegas today or the next day or so and you're planning to stay at an MGM hotel on the Strip, you might run into some problems. The hotels have been hit with a massive cyber attack. It's caused some major issues. Rick Vallada is the assistant business editor for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, gentlemen. So the story I heard is that the cyber attack hit so hard that people using room keys couldn't get into the rooms. It, it knocked out even that system. Is that correct? That, that's correct. Uh, in the early going of this uh, this incident, 
the uh, uh, people were complaining that they were not able to access their rooms because they used the MGM app, which uh, has the ability to open the open the door. What MGM has now done, though, is they have issued the common um, uh, room key with the, the the card room keys that uh, kind of take the place of that uh, that app. So that seems to be back in order on all the MGM properties. And incidentally, this is not just one place. It's like 10 different resorts on the Las Vegas Strip. Any idea who's doing the hacking? Well, right now we are reporting that a Russian ransomware hacker group uh, known as uh, ALPHV, A-L-P-H-V, uh, and they also go by Black Cat. Uh, that, that's who we're hearing is responsible for this, but MGM has not acknowledged that it's even been a uh, an attack or a cyber attack. They are uh, saying that it's an incident that they are working to correct. And uh, even though it has affected a number of different computer systems, including all the corporate email, uh, some slot machines, uh, the parking, the paid parking uh, system that they have, a, a number of different systems have been uh, affected by this but they are trying to uh, regain control of some of these things. One of the things that's kind of interesting is that because they don't want to spread this to uh, to other systems, they've actually shut some of the things down themselves um, and, and just to, to make sure that it doesn't uh, continue onward to other systems within the, within the company. And uh, has this ever happened to any other hotel chain there in, in Vegas? Has ransomware hit it and what happened? Did they pay? Well, we, we have been uh, checking out some reports right now. The gaming regulators are not confirming anything, but uh, apparently this has happened to uh, another large Las Vegas company, Caesars Entertainment. Uh, we are uh, reaching out to them to see if they want to talk a little bit about it. Uh, there are numerous reports on the Internet that suggest that they did pay a ransom, but we have not confirmed any of that. You mentioned a Russian group. Is there any reason to believe that it would be state-sponsored? Uh, no indication of that. It sounds like these are just uh, independent uh, folks that like to stir up trouble and, and try to uh, uh, ransom, uh, you know, get, get, get paid for, for some of the, to correct some of the things that they've done to the systems. Um, apparently, some of the experts that we've talked to said that uh, this breach might have been uh, made with a, just a simple telephone call that lasted 10 minutes that uh, they found uh, some uh, passwords that uh, were necessary to access the system. They got in and then they created havoc. Were they able to access personal information like if, if someone had stated an MGM property in Vegas and, and they had to input uh, you know names, addresses, what have you, would that be in there? The, the company has uh, not acknowledged that any personal data has been breached. Uh, but of course, that's always something that you need to watch out for. When uh, uh, part of the system that was uh, attacked is the credit card system. So um, obviously, there's a lot of personal information attached to some of these credit card accounts. If that information was breached, then there could be problems for the public. Uh, but at the present time, there's no indication that that has occurred. How often does this happen in Vegas, and, and how often do we know about it? Well, um, we, we know of at least uh, three incidents in uh, like the past, uh, I believe, year. Uh, there was one incident that was reported 
in uh, August that looked like it was going to be a cyber attack, but in fact, it was not. It was, in fact, a, uh, a construction company that was working that ha that actually sliced uh, one of the uh, uh, fiber optic lines that uh, supplied Westgate Resorts. Uh, that turned out to be not a cyber attack, and they were back online within 24 hours. All right, Rick Vallada, thank you so much for joining us. That was uh, He's assistant uh, business editor for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Hacking the MGM hotels, all the properties, uh, got into the systems, locked people out of the rooms, couldn't park the cars, couldn't uh, buy stuff. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. That was a pregnant pause. That was very pregnant. It's very theatrical. You're listening, pause, mm-hmm. to KNX In-Depth. With Rob Archer, I'm Charles Feldman. I had a baby. You, you what? As baby boomers, as baby boomers get older, many are finding it harder and harder to get by. A lot of them are falling into homelessness as they age. And this is becoming a growing problem that might not have an end in sight. Teresa Smith is CEO of Dreams for Change, which is a San Diego-based organization. It helps homeless people. It is a crisis that she sees up close. Teresa, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So baby boomers, why, as they age, are they more prone to becoming homeless? Well, partly because what we're seeing is that they're on a fixed income. And as we see inflation and the cost of housing skyrocketed, their income doesn't change. And so they cannot cover that difference of cost when the rent goes up, even if it is $50, $100, $200. And uh, these are endemic weaknesses in the social safety net uh, that's uh, supposed to help people. But a lot of that's been going away, especially as we see uh, on the top end, people are getting richer and the middle class is disappearing. Is this all part of this? Is this just another symptom of that? It it most definitely is. um, But even more so, it's a bigger symptom of our housing situation and the increased cost of rent. Um, You know, as you you mentioned, the uh, safety net, hasn't really changed much. Uh, you know, they may get a $50 increase a year, but the rent goes up 200 Food cost goes up, you know, even more so too. Um, so yeah, there's definitely that gap is, is widened even more so. And and I think we're right in saying that you think it's going to get worse. And, and I, I can see why you might think that because all the conditions that we've just talked about are certainly not headed in the right direction in terms of rent increases, cost of inflation, that sort of thing. Um, Is there a solution? Because it would be nice if we can tell people that there is, but we also want to be honest with them if there isn't. Well, we we already know what the solution is. A lot of it has to do with more housing. And as we talk about seniors, it's specific to senior housing. As, you know, the baby boomers, in essence, are aging and moving into, you know, those later ages of life, the stages of life the actual levels of senior housing to support that is just not available. Um, and so as we can increase even just that stock of housing to get people that access. Right. But, but the thing and you're right, but, but here's the thing though, Teresa, I mean, you know, on, on homelessness across the board, whether it's baby boomers or uh, younger people, you know, this mantra that people have been saying now for a very long time, especially in California we need more housing. We need more infor- affordable housing, right? Um, and I see new housing going up all the time here in Los Angeles, but none of it would be considered even remotely uh, reasonably priced unless you have a six-figure income. So that housing is not 
going to help the people that we're talking about. Do you see, uh, other than just having a wish list, which, is, you know, it's nice to wish, but do you see any real progress in the years that you've been dealing with this in the direction that it would take in order to solve or at least start to solve this problem? Not the progress that we need by no means. Um, but yeah, there isn't that progress that's happening. Um, Cause as you mentioned, yeah, yeah. Some of the housing that's going up is unaffordable um, for most. And what we even see here in San Diego, a lot of it sits empty. Um, so that doesn't help us at all when it gets to sit, when it just sits empty. Um, so yeah, we're, we're not keeping up with the pace by any means. And, you know, as I, as I look to the future, cause yeah, I've working in this for quite a few years that, uh, it's, it's, it's tough that we don't have an end in sight, um, in so many ways, um, tough to see that tough to realize that because the investment that needs to happen, is just not there. Um, and that's why I think there's other models that are looking at because we know to build housing, it, it takes time. We can't necessarily build ourselves out of this as quickly. Um, so I know there's groups that have been exploring some, what you know, in essence, let's consider that basic income, where how do we supplement our seniors specifically, because there's a project here in San Diego that's working specifically with seniors, by just giving them a couple hundred dollars a month, the two to $300, it's possibly that rent increase that they experienced or that food cost that they experienced. Um, and ha- helping them hopefully stay in the housing that they're in just by giving them that actual cash to do that. And what we know from doing that too is that it's much cheaper to do that than it is for them to fall into homelessness and have to go through that homeless system where it's very costly. Uh, Teresa, very quickly, um, this is obviously not sustainable. I don't think you think this is sustainable. You don't see uh, a, a very bright light at the end of the table at the end of the tunnel. But at some point, uh, we're going to crash, aren't we? We're, it's like we're talking about climate change, where the less and less we do, the worse it's going to get. And uh, at some point, we pass the point of no return. Do you think we pass that point of no return? At some point, too many people are going to be unable to afford housing. I don't think we're past that yet. I do think we still have time um, to make some changes and to help, you know, at least stop the bleed and hopefully we can level out. And like I said, it is doing some of those types of things of just putting money in people's hands so they can stay in the house that they're at. Um, Looking at policies around how we build. And I think, you know, I know our state has been doing better at that. Looking at the legislation around how do we speed up the permitting processes so it doesn't take two years just to go through a permit process to build something? Um, so I do think there is different um, leverages that we can utilize that will help because um, I, 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 it's not full of no hope, let me put it that way. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Teresa Smith, CEO of Dreams for Change. It's a San Diego-based organization helping homeless people. You know, when I was younger, Rob, I used to want to sue for everything. And I'm not even a lawyer. You know, right. I was a kid. If the candy bar was melted, sue. Right. You yeah. know, or, yeah. if, or if my bicycle broke, you know, where the tire deflated. Yeah. Take a Chain McCoy. came off. Sue. Yeah. Because yeah. that, in my mind, was the way to settle things. Yeah. But it usually doesn't work. No. <laughs> no, not work. always. No. Yeah. But but sometimes there are good reasons right. to, to do that. And attorney Jeffrey Simon may have one of them. He has been 
fighting big corporations for years and years, and he's one, too, making big pharma pay for its role in the opioid epidemic, for example. And right now he's going after big oil for its role in climate change. Now he's with us to explain this massive lawsuit. He's also coming up with a new book tomorrow called Last Rights, The Fight to Save the Seventh Amendment. Jeffrey, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be with you. So I I take it, I gather that this is very similar to suing Big Pharma for its role in the opioid epidemic in much the same way. Is it not you're suing Big Oil for what it's doing to add to climate change to make it worse? Is is that correct? Yeah, it is. That's a very astute point. Uh, in, In opioid litigation, the primary thesis was that Uh, certain pharmaceutical companies created a big public health crisis in violation of the law, and that is the same central allegation in the climate case we filed on behalf of Multnomah County, Oregon, against different companies, in this case, you know, fossil fuel companies. So what would the remedy be? Well, when one sues for public nuisance, what you are seeking is money for harm reduction. In other words, Portland, Oregon, which is in Multnomah County, is not Phoenix, and it's not uh, planned uh, in terms of, you know, urban strategies for heat resilience. And that's because the average high temperature, you know, for a thousand years uh, in that part of the world in the summer was 78 degrees. Well, in June 2021, uh, Multnomah County, uh, Oregon, uh, and along with the entire Pacific Northwest of the United States, was hit with the most extreme heat event in recorded history. Temperatures reached 116 degrees Fahrenheit. A thousand people died in the region. Things burned. Property was, property was destroyed. The the cables and cable cars melted. And in order to deal with the fact that that's going to happen over and over again. The entire uh, infrastructure has to be reimagined in terms of heat resilience and emergency services, and it's very expensive. And the companies that cause that should have to pay for it. And there are uh, a number of published scientific studies that says this event was caused by carbon pollution, principally fossil fuels. And therein lies part of the problem, I think. As you say, Big Oil has a lot of money, and they could pay for fixing a lot of this. But they also want to use that money to protect themselves, so they're going to throw a lot of money at you. Uh, they have a big lobby as well. They have a lot of politicians in their pocket, not just Republicans, but Democrats as well. And now in government, you have a, a, a noticeable subset of politicians who are right there with the uh, climate change deniers who say that uh, there might be climate change happening, but it's not man-made, and it's certainly not the fault of big oil. So you've got a lot of headwinds against you. How are you dealing with that? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, But this is a matter of straightforward, irrefutable science. Denying that fossil fuel pollution is causing extreme weather in various places around the world is like denying the existence of gravity. It is as clear in science that the fossil fuel essentially blocking uh, structure, in other words, the carbon molecules in the atmosphere prevent 
refracted heat from escaping the Earth's surface, which causes it to warm, which throws the heat energy balance uh, of the world uh, out of balance and causes extreme heat events. Simply put, uh, the world, the surface temperature of the Earth, is a little more than three degrees warmer than it should be because of fossil fuels. And that might not sound very much if you're talking about the difference between 72 and 75 degrees on a particular day, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the surface temperature of the Earth. It would be like if my standard temperature going forward, the new normal, instead of being 90, you know, 98.6, was 101.6. Well, then I'm sick. And not right. only that, if I then get sick with something else that raises my temperature, you know, now I'm at 104, 105, I can have a heat stroke. That is what has happened to the Earth. And that scientific fact is undeniable. Right. Jeffrey, let, let me, let me, let me uh, though, uh, read you a little bit of what uh, some of the oil companies are saying. Right? Uh, we reached out, for example, to uh, ExxonMobil. We didn't hear back from them. But a lawyer for Chevron told a TV station in Oregon that these lawsuits are counterproductive. They're distractions from advancing international policy solutions. And a spokesperson for Shell told that same station that the company fully supports uh, and we're quoting the need for society to transition to a low carbon future, but that a lawsuit is not the best way to pursue that goal. Um, and I take it that you are going to find all of those statements uh, objectionable. I certainly find them entirely inapplicable. OK, if, if if a company pollutes and as a result of that pollution, they harm people in a community at large then they should be held accountable in the civil justice system, especially if they lie about what they foresaw as the intended impact of that pollution, and we contend that they did. In this lawsuit, we can't change regulatory policy or even the minds of politicians necessarily, nor are we trying to. What we're trying to do is hold what we contend is a group of wrongdoers accountable for the harm they caused which is no different than any other appropriate use of the civil justice system. All right, Jeffrey Simon, thank you so much. He is at the head of a lawsuit, a big lawsuit, going after big oil for its role in climate change. You know, I'm, I'm starting to regret that when I was a kid and the chocolate bar melted, I didn't sue. You should have. I should have. You, you know. could have gone somewhere. I, I could have. I, I not, At least I could have gotten another chocolate bar. Right, exactly. And, and I didn't. And hey, a new so, chocolate bar is not nothing. Yeah, so I lost all around. It's uh, that's going to do it for KNX in depth today. We'll be back tomorrow and uh, we'll get some more lawsuits from Charles Feldman over here and uh, we'll see you then.